Welcome to Exploring Creativity. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and provide a community for creative people all over the world. On this podcast, we explore a variety of topics with a multifaceted group of creative people. We explore these topics in hopes of broadening your perspective and giving you the tools you need to do your very best work. Today I'm speaking with Alex Goose. Alex is a producer and songwriter. Together we explored the responsibility of creative people, what good and bad taste means, how to avoid becoming jaded, and so much more. It was a great conversation with a great friend, and I'm super excited for you to hear it. What's up, man? Going well. I can't believe this is your first live. Um, I've never, I'm just, you know, I'm not really like much of like a social media person for the most part. So I just don't really ever do it, but um, I'm excited. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, man. When you, uh, when you said you would do it, I was like, it's like finding a unicorn. <laughs> I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> um, I really appreciate it. I'm excited for people that haven't met you or haven't heard of Alex Goose. Uh, what they're going to get out of this. So, um, yeah, um, basically, I'll, I'll walk you through kind of the structure of how it goes. I'm sure you know at this point, but I selected um, eight topics for you that I wanted to dive into. Mm-hmm. This is all about you. So I'm going to read them off. You can choose wherever you want to start okay. and you can dive in as deep or shallow as you want into any of these. Uh, I'll be asking questions as we go to kind of clarify things or expand upon things. So, okay, so here are my topics for you chosen specifically for Alex. Um, Competition, collaboration, inspiration, taste, decision-making, intention, feedback, and self-esteem. All right. Where do we start? What what popped out to you? Um, I mean, I guess they all popped out to me, really. Yeah. (laughs) relatable um I'll, i'm done or wherever you want to start do you want to start with just like go in that order i'm gonna i'm gonna listen to rory he says taste and that's definitely something i want to speak to you about so okay. i would love to hear i you're one of the people if i were to look at every one of my followers friends people i've come in contact with i'd say you're in the top three people with, with the best taste and Taste is an interesting word. It's hard to know even what it means or how it registers for the individual, but you seem very tasteful in how you approach the work, your aesthetic, your house, your clothing, the whole thing. So I'd love to hear, and a lot of people are writing in about taste. Uh, I'd love to hear where, like, where you're at with taste. What do you think about it? Are you very intentional about it? Where did it start? Yeah. Yeah, that's a... That's a funny topic. Like, um, I, I'll never forget this. Like when, before I was even doing music and I was in art school, or I was just starting to do music. I remember like a professor telling me one time, he was just like, you know, you have to have good taste if you're going to be an artist and be successful because that's, what's going to sort of like help you stand out amongst other people. And I, I guess that's kind of true to some extent. I mean, Also, I don't know if taste can really be learned. Like, I think it's just kind of something that you have within you. Like, and I don't even know if there's a real thing between good and bad taste. I think it's just like the concept of whether there's good or bad art. I think it's just sort of based on just perception and what you're into, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I just, there's certain specific things that I really like in terms of design, in terms of music, different attributes and, and whatnot. Um, but I've just kind of always liked the same things that I've always been into. And I think it's just sort of developed, uh, whether it's music or design or art or architecture, furniture, sort of anything, you know, whether it's even food and wine. Um, I think it all like lends itself to, to everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, that's just kind of my specific take on it. Uh, I've definitely heard that phrase thrown around a lot, though. It's like, good taste. You have good taste. Like, what is... I'm still trying to kind of figure out, like, what defines that. And, and like, not looking at it from, like, a self-absorbed way where it's like, oh, well, I like this. So this, you know, and you like the same thing. So we both have taste. I mean, mm. the... So always hearing out other people's opinions on things like that. And even if I just... I do think uh, taste is something that's just sort of like you just sort of have your own specific taste in things. Um, it's just like our good friend, uh, John Castelli, uh, you know, him and I bonded over, it wasn't even music. Like we bonded over wine, which was kind of, I remember we first met at Rob Moose's uh, wedding party he was, oh man, you have really good taste in wine. Like, we like the same kind of wine. I was like, yeah, we have the same taste and stuff. Um, but I don't know if that's considered taste. I think it's just specific to, you know, what you're. I'm trying to really look at it from like not a selfish point of view. I'm trying to be open to hearing I'm, people's opinions on, on what defines good taste or not. I do want to know from a selfish point of view what it means. <laughs> you know? Totally open to that. Um, man, from a selfish view, I would say uh, it's just any, you know, very specific. I mean, I'm really OCD and super specific with certain things that I like. Um, and that just is sort of what I would consider good taste to me, at least the things that I'm into. Um, but you could tell me that you disagree and that you have you know, you'd like something completely different. Like for example, like here's a example that just recently happened. So there was like a flatware set yes. by a very specific designer that I've been looking for for like three years, mm -hmm. like scouring auctions, like, you know, first dibs, like everywhere, just trying to find uh, this very specific flatware set. And I think it's brilliantly designed, like it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I showed it to a, like, I don't really get this. I was like, mean, I'm like this, it's so perfectly designed, beautiful. And he was just like, yeah, I don't know, man. He's like, it doesn't really, I don't know. It doesn't, it looks weird to me. It doesn't really, I don't like it. Like, oh, interesting. Okay. I thought this was really beautiful. Um, and it was the first person that told me that they didn't think it was beautiful at all. And my first inclination was, well, all right, you just have bad taste. <laughs> like actually say that but i thought that you know and i was like well all right we just you know we don't we don't have the same taste yeah we're just not friends anymore no, I'm saying. but yeah but like again that's like a very selfish point of view you know i think like you have to be open to other things that other people like and sort of uh not take it too personal so no it's great um so to recap kind of what you were saying, um, 
you were talking about, you know, the flower set that you showed me, which I thought was dope, but someone didn't like it. It looks weird. Kind of give you feedback on your taste and sort of how do you like sort of exploring what does taste mean? Um, Is it a way of gauging other people? Is it completely for you to develop your own work? Is it both? Um, Is it, is there a common ground? You're talking about John and he likes the same wine. Oh, that there's common ground there. You know, um, there's a few topics related to that. I think it's both of those things. Um, I do think that people who have similar tastes in things do bond quickly and do have certain things in common. Like, and this isn't for every situation, but you know, just case in point, like my good friend, Egon, um, you know, did the same type of music. I mean, we listen to the same sort of music. We have the same taste in that. We also just wine, you know, and obviously we're friends regardless of that, but like our tastes are very similar and things that we really enjoy and that are really near and dear to us. So, um, that's always sort of like a talking point and like, a um, like something to sort of like bond over, you know, mm-hmm. like you're really passionate about spe- very specific things and you have, uh, friends in your life that are also very passionate about those very specific things. Um, that's a, a strong bo- a bonding point. And like, I guess in a way it could sort of feel pretentious just saying that, but I don't really mean it in that way. I just mean it more in, in things that you're really deeply passionate about, you know, that like you wake up every day and just can't stop thinking about, you know, whether it's music or design or food or, or wine or anything like that, you know, like very specific things that, uh, that have to do with specific tastes. Mm-hmm. I think it's both of those things. Yeah. But learn to like, not like, but like not to judge people based on like, you know, like you can't really judge anyone based on the, uh, that they have, um, in anything really. It's just, it's just different, you know? Right. So the good and bad taste kind of thing is, yeah, I don't know. I'm still kind of figuring that out. I don't know if I totally subscribe to phrasing it like that it's just more like mm-hmm. specific tastes or just different tastes and things yeah i like that a lot um it's this like, idea that there there might oh sorry I, go ahead somebody might like the font papyrus you know they might. it's the greatest typeface of all time and you and someone I, made it someone it, made that fun was like well the guy apparently also apologized for making it later yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that's the thing. It's like, there's just people like different things and, uh, mm. you know, mm. you judge them based on whether or not they like the same things you're into. But I think just in the end, it's, it's just like music. Like when people tell me they like record or song or something, and I may disagree and say, oh, I wasn't really feeling it. That doesn't mean really good or bad. Like in mm. it's just, you know, it's just a preference thing, really. So this idea, so I'm thinking a few things right now. I'm thinking about the idea of developing taste in this context. Like, is developing taste really being discerning, being intentional, or re- not even being intentional, but actually trying to understand the intention behind something and whether you align with that from a value point of view or from your own personal intent? Like, oh, I might have made that same move and that that's why it resonates with me. Or... I would have loved to have made that move. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Is that sort of like 
part of the development of taste for you? Yeah, I think so. For sure. Yeah. There's been instances where like, and it's like very humbling because when someone, like when you do something or make something or, or find something that you think is like brilliant and then someone just tells you that it's like, you know, yeah. uh, and especially if it's some, you know, opinion that you really re- respect and that's a really humbling that's happening to me before where I'm like, oh, okay, like maybe not good or bad taste. It's just sort of a, like a preference thing. You know? Yeah. This idea of taste and preference. I wonder how the dictionary is defining these, but there is definitely a relation between those two things. Um, I'm thinking about your work as a producer and the fact that like I could come into your studio and we have completely different tastes on things. How are you thinking about that when you're like working with an artist where um, they, they're coming at it from a totally different point of view? How do you resolve this sort of intersection of taste? Um, can you be a little more specific with the question? Because I, I think I understand what you're at, but are you yeah, at, like, like my my actual space here, like with like how I designed it, or oh no, I mean, yeah, if they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like how this looks. Can you can you move it? <laughs> no, like your your musical taste, your your professional taste on things, um, and their professional taste, oh, they're not always going to be aligned. So. Yeah. You mean when it comes to making music? Yeah. Or any sort of professional engagement, um, creative engagement. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good question. Um, well, I think if you're making something with somebody and you're disagreeing a lot over what you want to make and the taste of everything, I kind of see that as a sign of like, maybe it's like not meant to be Mm. sort of a struggle and it doesn't really feel natural. And, but I, I think I have a different experience with, in making music where like, I haven't really done anything ever in my semi short career span of like, uh, ever really doing anything that I never really wanted to do or felt unnatural because mm-hmm. the way in making music was not even supposed to be my career. And so I've only just looked at it from a means of just like having fun and like doing the thing that I'm specifically, I think that I'm good at, you know? Um, so there's been instances where that's happened for sure. Where like, uh, I've worked with some really incredible people, but it just like, didn't, uh, pan out because it just like, wasn't a good match. Uh, And was that sort of how it was communicated? Oh yeah. Yeah. Really upfront about it. Just, Mm -hmm. I don't think this is working and it's all good. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to move this rug. I want to keep it. There. Well, well, it's, I think you should definitely like try hard to make, and try to like, mm. you know, get something down. That's like great. But sometimes it just doesn't come. And like, you just never know. Sometimes people are just having weird days and like things just up and there's no chemistry there. It just depends. Like there's so many, there's, um, but yeah, if someone asked me to move my rug, I don't think I would move it. <laughs> that's we we've found the line. That's it. So anyone on here that's working with Alex, just don't don't go there. No. Um to recap some of this and see if you want to add on to it any bit. Um you said that in school, a professor said to you, 
that it's sort of taste that is what makes you as an artist. It's what separates you from other individuals. And so like fostering that, developing that is part of the process that you feel like there isn't really good and bad taste, but there's different tastes on things um, that you have developed taste as an integration of all things. So music, design, art, architecture, food, wine, all of them fall into this area where um, you can integrate things from different um, spaces mm. to develop your taste. Um, that it can be useful as a bonding um, mechanism. It can be useful as a way of evaluating whether you want to work with someone or just understanding um, kind of where they're coming from. And uh, for you, taste is uh, about being super specific on things. OCD, like you mentioned, like really diving into those nuanced details. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of what I've taken away so far. Would you, um, would you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I mean, I think that's all. Yeah, that's all it will be covered. Great. That professor in art school was really inspiring. He, uh, I'm trying to remember how he broke it down to, I think like, at that time, like when you're in art school, you're probably a little hyper competitive and people are just trying to be great and you're doing critiques every single day. And uh, I remember him saying something like, like you can be like really technically good as an artist. Like you can learn all the skill sets, any of the technology. Um, and I guess it's like two. But he said the one thing that's going to like make anybody stand out is your taste. Yeah. Like what you find tasteful in whatever sort of medium you're working in. It doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, you're doing it from a technical standpoint. Um, and I thought that was like really inspiring because I think a lot of people at that time in school were like, and even now, even in music, you know, like music is also a very technical youth that just like technology and, and how music is made. Um, and taste is something that you just can't really like, like it's not something you can program. Right. Just turn it up or down or. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's your own personal thing. That's really what ever work you're making. Almost like a, a lens through which decisions are made. Yeah. Oh, wild. Say, oh, that's really funny. <laughs> I think uh, that's true. I think you uh, will not work with artists who don't like carbs. No, carbs only. Yeah, if you can't feed them pasta, I mean, yeah. what is that? Um, how would you paraphrase what your professor told you? And do you still like believe what he's saying to be true? Um. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah, I think I'm just trying to how to say this because um, what he said to me, like, I really took that to heart. Um, also, like, I remember like one time in this like article, like a long time ago, Madlib said something about like, it doesn't matter what kind of gear you make your music, like mm -hmm. whatever you make your music is going to be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It's from within you. Mm -hmm. Like that's what's going to show. And like, that's what people are going to latch on to. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like what 
he, the professor was saying as well, you know, about being an artist. It was worry about the, just do what you, you want to do, what's true to you, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yesterday when I interviewed uh, Brian Garrity, he said the same thing when he started making collages, he was using this like app called Pick Stitch, I think, which yep. is like some basic app. And people were like, oh, why don't you use Photoshop? Why don't you use this app? Why don't you use that? And he's like, like, I've been making these for a few months now. People like them. I like them. Like, wh why does the technology matter? Like, if this is working, why does the technology matter? You know, like, unless you don't like the work and then you think the tool is going to solve it, but it won't, you know? That's an interesting topic, I think. Like, the, like techno technology and art. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. No. Like, where's the line drawn a little bit with that? Yeah, I mean, I am in the same boat where the technology for me is a means, like I love technology and I geek out on it and I love to use all the features and know what's possible. But then at the same time, when I'm like using creative tools, I want to use something that's as, as simple to use, easy to use as possible. I want it to be as out of the way as possible. And some of that is like a ramp up period to learn it and then it's out of the way. But other times, like a lot doesn't need to be in the way ever. You don't even need the ramp up. It just can, you can express and get something out as long as, you know, it meets certain criteria. I, I agree with Madlib. Like, I think it's more about you and what you're putting into it. Um, and if that's being stopped because of technology, then yeah, you should use something easy. Use Pickstitch, you know, like. For sure. How do you feel about that? I know you're a, you're a Fruity Loops user. Yeah. I use FL Studio and Pro Tools, but um, mm. I've always enjoyed the workflow of it because I don't have to think about it. Yeah. I just get out what's ever in my head very quickly. Right. And I've always tried to keep sort of a, a simple setup to a degree just so you can, I can move as quickly as possible. Mm. Get hung up on too many technical things. And the is don't get out as quick. You want to be able to just get out ideas as quickly as possible because, you know, they come and go. Like one second you have an idea, like two seconds later you forget it. Like it's just like a stream yeah. of, you know. Yeah. So definitely technology really can't get in the way of the creative process. It kind of just has to support it. I totally agree. And I think, and what I've seen in the music industry, especially is technology being coming before, especially in the engineering conversation, coming before the art, um, as like the art needs to pass through all of my technology first, and then I interact with it. And, um, I know John's a big champion of getting ahead of that, you know, like oh, yeah. being in front of it and then deciding what technology to use. And he's, you know, reduced his setup. You've reduced your setup. I've reduced my setup. When I show people the apps I use to make the work I do, they're like, dude, how come you're not in this and that and that and this 3D program, da, da, da. And it's like, well, I didn't need to, <laughs> you know, like I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's uh, there's tools that are, that can do an infinite amount of things, but at what cost? Yep, definitely. And if I'm thinking about, you know, this weird little attribute that I need to bug fix and spend a whole day figuring out and now all my ideas are lost, um, what's the point? Yeah, no, I know. I, I was talking to you. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just say that's the dilemma. I mean, like that's the that's the thing you have to be careful of. Yeah, 
Uh, I'll say one more thing about this, which is today I was um, working on this proposal and I was working with um, my buddy, Brian Parker, who was on an early live, actually before I figured out how this whole process would work. Um, and we we're talking about this idea of shit posting. Do you know that term? It's like an Instagram term, meaning like just people posting like junk posts for fun. Like they might do like a whole collage, not collage, like um, multiple like carousel of like random photos from their photo album that like aren't meaningful, that might've accidentally fired off in their pocket. And it's called shit posting. Um, and I was saying when I type, I do shit typing. Like I'll just type, like if I'm hearing something, like when I'm doing any writing work, I'm not stopping to perfect a word. If I spell it wrong, I know it's wrong, it's fine. Like I'm not gonna stop and look up the words, stop and slow down. And like when there's so many good ideas that are happening in that moment. Um, Cause we were like flowing today. And if I had stopped at any point to like, well, hold on, let me like, you know, make sure there's a comma here and we would have lost all the, the magic and all of the meaning. So, so editing is for later. Editing is for later. Drink for edit. What is it? <laughs> uh, write drunk, edit sober. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it, I think that's definitely related to this whole thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of the technology getting as out of the way as possible. So I'm going to read through these topics again. I want to hear kind of where you're at. Actually, hmm, I want to hear your riff on self-esteem. I'd love to know, like, was there ever a time early on, like early on, like before music even? Yeah. Um, maybe even during design school or art school or before that even where like esteem or how you felt about yourself and what you were doing was anything that was top of mind or, or did you maybe learn something about it early on that changed how you thought about it? Yeah. Well, okay. For sure. I mean, I think as an artist, like no matter what, like you're sensitive to what you make and what you do and what people think about it. And the first thing that's coming to my mind right now, um, involving self-esteem, but I don't know if it's quite self-esteem, but maybe it's related that, uh, you know, going back to art school, which I'm not trying to just always go back to the art school topic, but like it kind of, this was like a sort of a pivotal time for me because I grew up on the East coast and in the Midwest, I was usually kind of like one of the only like artsy mm. kind of like wherever I was at, you know, like growing up, like even in high school, like most of my friends like weren't in art or music or, um, so when I went to art school, it was sort of a, uh, like a big shift. Um, and you're just like around a bunch of different people that are all into the same thing you're into. And we would do these like critiques like every day. And the critiques would be like really brutal. Like you'd come in with your work and, uh, the first critiques were really insane because yeah. I don't think most people were used to any criticizing something that they had made, uh, probably just from like, you know, like a very, uh, like vulnerable place. Mm. So you're like making art, you're putting it up on a wall and people are just standing there like this. And they're just you know, how it makes them feel. <laughs> and there's a lot of flashbacks. Yeah. It's sort of awkward, you know, and it can sort of make you feel a little weird about uh, 
you're making and self-conscious. Mm. And then you could get trapped into a pattern of trying to only make things that people are going to like. Mm. Uh, and that definitely happened, not just to me, but to a lot of, of my friends. I think self-esteem is definitely tied into that for sure. Yes. Um, I think there's a little bit of competition there as well that we could probably dive into. Mm -hmm. um, but all of this was really like good for me to experience because like moving forward into like my music career gave me much thicker skin and like less of a, like a chip on my shoulder mm. into something, you know? So I want to kind of zoom into that time period, like college Alex in his first critique presenting work. Um, people are like furrowed brow, like, mm. um, thinking about it, you know, um, professors like this looks like shit or <laughs> whatever. Um, early on, was it, did you feel like it was more difficult to receive that feedback? Uh, and like, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Where did that switch come from? Back, you know, mm. art for me was always, always a personal thing. Um, when I went to art school, it was like a hard shift because something that like became, or something that was very personal to me that I did on my own time without anyone telling me what to do or what they thought about it all of a sudden became like a brief, like an aside. Yeah. And I was all of a sudden making something mm -hmm. fit with box of this assignment, which I had never experienced before while being a, any type of artist, whether I was painting or illustrating or drawing comics or whatever, like no one ever really kind of gave me a, an assignment. So yeah, I sort of like lost the, like the spark that I had mm. art during school, which is why I started making music mm -hmm. just out of like wanting to make something that, uh, that had no rules really. Mm. Like making music. Have you since sort of resolved that now knowing that you're working with established artists who have their own, not to say that they're boxed in, but they have their own brand and they have their own catalog of music or, you know, working with larger organizations to produce music for them. Like, yeah. have you started to resolve that over time or have you completely resolved this idea of like working within constraints? Sort of, yeah. It's a lot easier now. Mm -hmm. But it also just depends on the project. I think a lot of artists and bands that I've worked with or I'm working with now are just open to really trying anything and everything in the studio. And that's really refreshing. Every now and then, you know, there will be sort of rigid situations with uh, different people, but we usually figure it out most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to doing music for, like you said, organizations, like brands, like whether I'm, like if I'm scoring a campaign for like Apple or Google or like any like big, huge brand, mm -hmm. Obviously, they have a uh, established look and feel and tone of this, mm -hmm. their brand. And I had to sort of fit into that sometimes. But luckily, and I'm very, very lucky um, when I get hired, they're usually just coming to me for what I do 
which is makes my life I'm never having to like try to do anything that uh is sort of outside of my realm so right really grateful for that like I've never really ran into any situations that have been super difficult in that world and in terms of so it seems like uh to summarize that in response to this working in like this sort of in the box brief based creative process that was introduced in art school you kind of rebelled and went into music because there was no constraint there and yeah. developed your practice in music without those constraints so even if you're working with a new artist who might have 10 records out even and they have their own sound you approach that process as let's try anything and everything to start um what i was curious about is does that then lead to creating a box of your own you know like intentionally like all right well we need to release something so you know eventually forming it into something or shaping it um which is a phrase i really like no, absolutely um <clears throat> i think one of the beautiful things about making music with people is that usually always well in most situations and, and the best scenario it comes from a really just vulnerable honest organic place mm -hmm. nothing super forced ever mm -hmm. uh whereas doing music for like brand campaign ad campaigns or doing stuff for film and tv there's a little more constraint there you know you have to be creative in a different way but when you're working with somebody that's already put out a lot of material and they sort of have a sound you just get in the room and you just try to figure it out and i honestly try not to think too much about it i don't like it because when you overthink it like not feeling like honest or natural or organic, it's so calculated. And I just music like that. Um, that's the re the re I mean, that's the reason why I started making music because mm. I wanted to get away from doing anything that felt right. too boxed in. That's why I was even nervous for music to like even be a career because it was refuge. Yeah. From being a visual artist and design, you know, doing design and like, for me, there was like no emotion or anything super deep or personal when it came to designing, it was more like problem solving. Right. A beautiful thing. And, uh, and I still love it, but music, another experience for me. And it was the closest thing, the feeling that I felt when I first started making art as a kid I'm an yeah. just I needed to do it okay that makes me want to introduce a topic that I feel like I wrote initially and maybe got deleted accidentally which is the idea of play um you mentioned feeling like a kid uh how music makes you feel that way I've heard uh some of the new music you're working on with Toby um and it feels like you had fun making that. It feels that way. And I know it is that way because I've seen how you move when the music's playing as if you were hearing it for the first time. Um, I'm wondering like about the play state, being in that state, is it, it seems as though you're not overthinking it, but you're definitely, um, you want to preserve that space because that is why you got into music in the first place. Is it something you're thinking about often? Like, when an artist is coming into the space? Absolutely. Every time. It's almost like, I mean, that's, well, that's exactly it. It's like, and not overthinking, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, 
none of that was overthought. Everything just happened, you know, just not even trying hard, like just out of thin air, really, like just making music. It was, yeah. nothing was overthought. And trusting the process that trusting that, look, we're both talented. We'll both come up with something. Let's just free flow, capture and refine later. Edit sober. Exactly. Do you, uh, speaking of edits, because edits are a form of shaping and a form of sort of boxing, right? Constraints. Um, how much are you editing? Like, are you starting free form? It's played, you play it, feels good. Are you then like, is there an Al- a version of Alex that is like in the, the technology editing super hardcore or do you keep things loose? Well, I think it, it, uh, it just depends on what the project or the song calls for, really. Sometimes things uh, could use some editing, you know, and it'll just make the record better. And then sometimes you don't need to edit anything at all just because the performance uh, doesn't really call for any editing. And there's like, again, like there's no good or bad way to do it, really. It's just, it sort of depends on what uh, what it is. But if there's any editing at all, it's usually towards the end of the process. Mm-hmm. Like we discussed, the important thing is to just get out the, the flow of creativity and spontaneity in the moment, capturing all of that. And then you can go back in later and edit it. Right. Editing's fun a lot of times. It just really depends on the kind of song you're trying to make and how you. When, when is editing fun for you? Like, what is it? Yeah, that's my question. Editing. Well, I can give you like an example. So there's a song I'm working on right now that's almost done. And the artist had rapped over the track with a completely different sample in it. Mm different drums, different everything. And I just had this idea to like take the sample out and just start putting different samples in and try different drum patterns. And it's almost like remixing something. Yeah. But the artist did the song over a track that was already there. I just took the track out. I'm just remake track to their performance. That's a form of editing, you know? Yeah. And you get sometimes really interesting and weird results. Like it can feel a little unnatural when you hear it, but that added tension creates something really unique. Mm-hmm. So that's just like a, a current example of something I'm doing right now. I'm thinking what you what you just said there, uh, combined with the idea of play and this idea of prompts, like these creative prompts that help um, kind of open up creativity. You said, you know, things are pretty natural in the studio. You're not overthinking it. You're letting things flow. Are there any sort of uh, devices you use and devices is, I mean that very generally, um, to open things up even more? And, and is that answer chicken parm or are there other things? Uh, I think, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, that's actually, the reason why I set up my studio the way that I did. So as you can see in here, I have like keyboards. It's all over the place. Kind of like show people, this is a beautiful space. Um, so there's just, you know, there's keyboards all over the place, but like everything's sort of 
plugged in all at once and ready to go. So all you have to do is just like hit record and you can be on any of these. Oh, and just like at a click, I can record it and capture it immediately. And uh, I kind of think of that as like, you know, a device to sort of uh, improve workflow and creativity. Because like you said, like sometimes the technology can just like slow you down. I just wanted to be able to capture anything at any time without any interruptions at all. So everything's just usually always turned on. Mm. I'd love to know the nerdy details of how that works for at another time, but a lot of, that, a lot of, a lot of uh, inputs. Yeah. 24 hours. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've heard that from a lot of producers because, you know, with design, I could just fire up an app and I'm in it, to open up my laptop and I can pretty much go. But with production, there's so many instruments that are uh, analog outside of the computer that all yeah. need connected and ready to go. And I find that the producers that are outputting the most and are having the most fun tends to be the ones where everything is is on and ready to go. And I think it speaks to that conversation earlier about technology getting in the way because a guitar is another form of technology. So, you know, if the guitar's string isn't, yeah, is broken, that's going to get in the way too. So, you know, making sure everything's ready to go. Always. Yeah. Always. Um, Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Oh, she said, yeah, everything's just always ready to go. Like that's just, it's really helped in a lot of situations. Definitely a lot of situations where, you know, we're in here working and things may not be flowing within the first five minutes or something, but then, you know, you turn on one of these keyboards or, or something and then you hear that gets the whole session going. And then you're on a roll and then like an hour later, you have a complete song. Mm. I found that just having a lot of things around in the studio, like whether it's pedals or keyboards or just even like a bunch of samples, just anything really increases the workflow. So introducing sort of new elements that uh, the collaborators haven't been exposed to before, whether that's a new keyboard sound or a sample or something, just to kind of switch them into a new space. Like these are new things. Um, novel novelty is great in certain functions. And I think this is one of them where they, they act as a device to be creative. It's like you've, you see this new material. It's like, oh, wow, what can you make with this crazy new material from outer space? Like, you know, you start thinking about it. Um, so I like that. And then you mentioned the ability to just get technology out of the way as another device to improve workflow and creativity. Are, um, are there any other devices that you're using interpersonally or like just general vibe wise? Like I know we joked about chicken parm, but is food another way of, um, of sort of a device to improve the, the flow of creativity? I mean, for me it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have like a dinner at 30 or seven and there's going to be a lot of wine there. You know, mm. I definitely feel the inspiration to get things wrapped up. I like it work really quickly in a fit. You know, I think, uh, I'm kind of joking, half joking. Um, if it's necessarily food, but I think, um, just setting like an overall good vibe in terms of just my space and just letting it be, uh, 
like a calm place for people to come in and work has been really helpful to setting a certain environment for people to be comfortable to create. Yeah. I mean, that's more important, if not more important than having a bunch of cool keyboards and gadgets and stuff laying around. You know, I think it's the energy and the vibe that you can, the space really, it's, that's the most important thing. So I'm imagining you're going around saging all the corners every day. Is that? <laughs> I'm not saging it, but, uh, but it's just about like how furniture is placed and where the light's hitting and, uh, plants are in here. And I mean, there's a lot of factors really, you know, mm -hmm. like I could get into a studio with like every piece of amazing gear ever. And if the vibe in the room is really bad and the terrible and like, it's just like no windows, or, I don't know, like I probably wouldn't be able to do anything. Mm -hmm. but like a good, I think vibes just like the most important thing. It's just setting a good environment to be creative in. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about a lot when uh, thinking about, you know, asking you to to uh, join one of these and, and what questions I wanted to ask, what topics I wanted to probe into was collaboration because as a producer, that is like the whole thing. I mean, it's like collaboration is inherent in that process. Um, I want to know a little bit about or a lot a bit about collaboration, what it means to you, how to make it better the origins of your relationship with collaboration and art. Mm. Most of the time I am collaborating with people. Um, and I think it's all like broken down into like a couple things. Like the first is if you have a good chemistry with the person or people that you're working with, I think that's the most important thing. There are instances where you're put in situations where you have to collaborate with people that you may not click with and you may disagree all the time with. Mm. And, that's, and I've tried those situations before and sometimes they've been full and a lot of times they haven't. Mm. And I think it's just really like a personal decision on whether or not you want to, because just collab choosing your collaborators wisely, you know, and yeah. making sure it's fun and, uh, that's the most important thing for me that I've learned. So I just try people that I enjoy working with. And even if we're not even working half the time and we're just like sharing a meal or, you know, having a drink or doing anything, like it should just feel pretty natural. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I haven't collaborated with too many people that have, have been like, you know, difficult to work with or anything like that. Yeah. So. Of the ones that were difficult, but the project ended up being successful, how did you resolve that poor collaboration? That's a hard, that's a, a hard thing to grapple with sometimes because you like, if you see something become really successful, but then you think about the process in which it took to get there, you're just like, damn, have to happen every time for something to be, you know, like, a few of the things I would say that were like, maybe like the most successful or close to the most successful for me so far were really difficult. Mm. I won't get into it detail wise, but I'll just say it's hard, you know, time when things are hard and when something does really well, 
you kind of look back, wow, it really paid off, you know? Mm-hmm. But then you get like, oh, I made this in 20 minutes. And then like, it just became huge. You know, it's like, like oh man, like, how does that happen? It's almost like a fairy tale. Like how come, well, I mean, it's, I feel like I wrote, you know, I just wrote down, it's like successful project, but bad collaboration equals bad narrative in your head. And the same way that like a good fairy tale or good narrative is like easy collaboration, successful, quick, done. Um, you know, I, I have this phrase that I tell people is like, what are you teaching yourself through the process? Um, this idea that like, this is a great example of that. Like a project successful, the collaboration was terrible. What is it? What's the story that results as, as a result of those things? Um, and you, you know, that it's like, wait, is this what it has to be every time? Like, and then you start thinking that I know I've fallen into that for sure. I've, what I, what I've learned is that you just never know what's going to happen in any scenario. What, mm. how many roadblocks that go up? I mean, like the tiniest little things could occur during the process of making a record or, or even on my, you know, scoring an ad or anything like, uh, you just never know what's going to happen. And so I think what I've learned is to just like, try to have the most fun with it. A lot of times mm-hmm. there's people that you really enjoy working with because sometimes there's external, uh, interferences that come in that have nothing to do with you or your collaborator, even or collaborators. It's, it's cynic thing, uh, that you have to deal with. So. Yeah. Right. So knowing that there are times where bad collaborations could lead to good results, try to find good collaborations that lead to good results, or even good collaborations that lead to bad results, yeah. but at least it's better. <laughs> it feels better. And then you're enjoying it. Yeah. That's so important. But like, like happy, like making what you're doing, you know, making what you're making and enjoy the process. Uh, you know, when you really love what you do, like it's a lot easier to wake up every day and be excited. Yeah. Simple as that. Um, yesterday, Brian, I kind of like having these back to back ones. I'll never do it again because it's tiring, but, um, I like having the back to back because I can kind of bring forward what people were saying. Um, he mentioned this idea, like he hit on it a few times in different ways. And I really liked it. This idea of just starting. You know, just not overthinking it and just starting. And it seems like that connects with you as well. Sometimes you just got to get something down so you can just critique it. Yeah. Yeah. Just curl your brow and (laughs) let's start over. No, but um, yeah, things just get done in the doing, you know, you just got to just do them. Just get started somehow. Get done in the doing. So you got to do them. I like it. That's, that's a bar right there. Um, okay. So what do we got here? So collaboration, let me recap there. That chemistry is the most important thing for collaboration, that choosing your collaborators wisely is super important. Try to find people you have fun with people that you could share a meal with over, um, other things, (laughs) bad collaborators. Uh, and be careful of, of kind of what it's teaching you along the way if if it works out, but it was a terrible collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just has to feel effortless and fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole why, I mean, that's the whole reason why I think a lot of people got into music is just because it was fun. 
mm. enjoy doing it, you know? And even if it's your career, I think you still got to try to have fun doing it. So I, I feel like, um, you know, in Greek mythology, there's the God of X, Y, and Z, you know, like a God of this, a God of that. You're like the God of preserving the effortlessness, uh, within music, you know, like, um, do you find that, uh, as the God of effortlessness, uh, that you often see, <laughs> that you often see, I had to troll you. This is what we do. I mean, <laughs> no, but, um, do you, do you see artists coming in where there is more effort being put in the wrong way? Like the, the wrong type of effort, like trying a little bit too hard? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Um, like sometimes like when people come in and like, there's just like a, like some sort of like urgency sort of feeling with their personality or something. And yeah, I mean, that happens sometimes. Like it's really important to observe that and then try to like center everything and just make sure there's like an even flow in the room. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes just, yeah, things can be off between people in the same room. And I think it's important to sort of like even all that out before you can really get to anything good. Uh, it's hard to, to ask questions like, how do you do that? But I kind of want to dig into that a little bit. Like someone comes in super urgent, um, urgent meets effortless. How, like, I, I think it's just a mix of personalities. Like everybody has a different personality. Yeah. Sometimes when you have multiple people in the same room uh, working together, just the the spectrum of like intensity intensity of personality can really throw things off, and uh, and can actually stifle things from getting finished, or at least starting on something. Yes, for sure. To just even that out is really important. So you kick like half the room out. No, that's <laughs> good. Find little tricks and little ways to sort of like get people on the same level. Mm. You know, would you say it requires a lot of listening skills and like just kind of a lot of yelling? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, just what's the, what's the best fake <laughs> advice you can give for this situation? That. <laughs> I said, what's the best fake advice you can give for, to resolve this? Just to yell at people. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. Uh, it's just like a lot of like little like tricks and stuff you can use this. Like, it just depends on who it is really and how comfortable you feel mm. telling them you know, that they need to bring it down a notch without telling them they need to bring it down a notch. Yeah. I don't want you to give away all your tricks, but or, I would kind of love to know them. This doesn't happen a lot, but like, or like, for example, you know, sometimes people will come in and like, we're like going to make something, we're going to work on something and like, they'll just like be on Instagram their whole, like the whole time, just a mom. Like, gonna make, like, how are you? Right. You know, make something if you're just like on your phone the whole time scrolling through your feed right yeah watching lives like someone might be in a session right now watching this shit 
I hope they are. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, work's not getting it didn't. Uh, the producers, but uh, yeah. So how do you, um, how do you disarm them in that way? Disarm them of their phone, of the feed. I just knock it out of their hand. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I. It depends again. It depends on the person and, and their personality type. If I don't really know them very well, then I have mm. to do it in a respectful way. Always, mm. but or you never know. Like sometimes people just aren't in that mode. Mm. Not, you know, like you may have something scheduled for a certain day, and like they may just not be feeling creative, and like they just want to scroll through their feed. They don't. Yeah. They don't want to make anything. I mean, that's the tricky thing about creativity. Like. When the spark is there, you have to like sort of grab it and you have to like latch onto it, take advantage of that moment. Because a lot of times people try to be creative when they're just like not really in, in that mode. So you have to be respectful of that too. That's a great point. Yeah, I guess there might be times where someone's on their phone, they're just not feeling it that day. And they're like, maybe we wrap up and schedule it for tomorrow or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a smart approach for sure. Because then you're just going to be sitting in there for four more hours. No one's really going to be feeling it. And then, you know, it's like 8 p.m. And you don't think down just because just the vibe wasn't really flowing. Right. Really common. Like that, that's a, that's a very tricky thing about being an artist and, and making stuff is that you really have to like be focused and you have to be in the right mind state order to do that mm. or you can just like work super super hard and just you know work 15 hours a day and like force it you know um like i remember hearing no i think it was actually a documentary it was about george martin the producer and he it didn't really seem like he was much of a vibe guy mm -hmm. he was like a schedule like we're getting in the studio we're working you know and all those guys like wore uh like white button-up shirts with black ties and they're you know it's like a it's like a gig and they would just work and work and work and work until they came up with something and that's also an niche making music too like you can work super hard and keep a very very rigid schedule and that works for some people too um Obviously, it worked for the Beatles very well. Yeah, I've heard of them. Um, yeah. I love how you're like, they're not a vibe guy. I'm just imagining you meet them he, for the... Yeah, I mean, he totally was a vibe. I mean, I didn't... Right. I didn't. <laughs> no, no, I, I got what you meant. Being like, you know, it's 2 p.m. And they're like, eh, like, we don't really feel like doing this anymore today. Like, well, let's start up next week. Or like, let's take some days off. It's like, I know... Tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Worked, yeah. They were like very strict schedule. It was like a work schedule. I, yeah. I mean, I definitely on the spectrum of, um, vibe guy to not vibe guy, definitely on the spectrum of not vibe guy. I like the schedule. I like knowing like might show up today. Nothing's there, but let me just try something. Um, but also like knowing that it's so important to know when the spark is there. And some days, like, I just don't even want to go near the thing. So having a, like a loose schedule, I guess is the way to Mm -hmm. find that balance if that's what someone seeks but 
it's actually been a dialogue that Rory and I have been engaged in about uh, someone we know who is very much of that rigid work hard mentality. Um, and Rory's like, you can't work that way. It's just not. And you're saying that's a way to work. You can work that way. Um, yeah. Maybe you wouldn't want to work that way in that environment, but you believe that that could produce great art. Absolutely. Again, it's just, it depends on the person. Like I actually like to keep a schedule. Mm -hmm. You like to, to work a lot and try a lot of different things in the studio. Even if no one's here with me, if I'm just working by myself, I think it's just more so when I have other people in here working, mm -hmm. I'm working with collaborators. I don't like to force what works for me necessarily on them. I'm really respectful of their space and, and what they're feeling. Mm. But when I'm working by myself, I do tend to keep a schedule. And then sometimes my schedule bleeds into the late night hours, you know, it'd be like two in the morning or something like that. I just don't stop. Or sometimes yeah. I am, yeah, I mean, it, I like to start at a time, but there's no telling when I may end. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, um, I have two more topics I believe I wanted to cover, but I'm sure we'll kind of veer into some others. Um, this idea of competition is something that actually when we're at your place, John and I got into a conversation about competition, feeling like he's someone who has a competitive edge to him. He played football in high school. Um, he has that competitive, um, sometimes healthy, sometimes not as healthy competitive edge. I'm wondering where you fall on that, how you think about competition, how it affects your creative process. Mm. Um, I've never been like the most competitive person. Uh, I'm probably not as competitive as John, but there were definitely periods in my life when I was definitely a lot more competitive than I am now. I think if anything, I'm just more competitive which, with myself. Mm. Kind of hard on myself just in terms of like, you know, it's like a personal thing, really. Um, I haven't found being competitive with other people necessarily helpful for mm -hmm. myself. I think then you start comparing like yourself to other people and maybe that's healthy for some people in their careers. I just have never really found it to work for me. So I'm just more competitive, just sort of with my own time and my own self and just seeing how much I can get done in a certain amount of time. And, uh, that's the main thing I would say. Mm, I like that competitive with your time and yourself. And it's funny talking about this with you because I don't even really think about it too much, but I had to sort of dig in a little bit, try to yeah. analyze during this, uh, this call. Well, yeah, I mean, I, that's, it's actually good to hear because that's really the intention of this for me is to talk to creative people about these. I was trying to find the word for it. Uh, and I think I found it today, which is talk about the intangible things that make up creativity. Um, and there are the things that we don't usually talk about. Um, things like collaboration and intention and feedback. They don't, they're not part of the finished product, but they're everything that makes the finished product, but you can't touch it. You can't hear it. Um, but you experience it. And so I think talking about these things is useful for people that might find themselves in different scenarios and maybe not have a philosophy around uh, any of these things. And so hearing from other people about it, I think it'd be really useful not to like 
copy everything Alex does only, but learn from it, you know? And um, yeah, so that's actually, uh, I'm, I'm happy that you haven't spoken about it before. Um, or actually, I, I have no preference as to whether or not you've spoken about it before. I'm happy you're speaking about it uh, now, though. Yeah, on a little bit, which is nice. Do you mind showing a quick tour of the studio? So, just have a bunch of keyboards here. It feels like the perfect size, like cozy enough, but like close enough. Where we had like seven people up there one time and it was like still felt like you had your own little space. Yeah, that was like the intention of this studio. Um, I had thought for like a while if I should ever get like a, like a separate space that was larger. Mm. I was able to fit everything in here and like create a good workflow, which was important to me. And I really like smaller, intimate spaces for making music. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think it kind of all like worked out. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to fit all of this stuff in here and create a, a seamless workflow, but I was able to do it. Uh, it took some troubleshooting for sure. And a friend of mine gave me some pointers on how to like set up my keyboards and like the flow. Um, I took some cues from his studio and, and, uh, obviously John and spider, um, really great advice to some of the things. So again, it just goes back to creating a space that feels comfortable creating in it, not having to overthink anything too much. That's the yeah, even size of the space, that's another kind of device is like, what space are you bringing people into where they collaborate? Like, it's a smaller space, but because of the ceilings, it doesn't feel as small. It feels bigger than the actual yeah. dimension of the, you know, the the floor. Yeah, the whole place is pretty big. I mean, this it's probably a close to a 2000 square foot place, but obviously all the creating and everything is done here in the studio, which is probably like, I, mean, I don't know the exact square footage, but you know, then even downstairs, like sometimes we could take breaks and we just downstairs and maybe some writing gets done there as well. So really space can kind of be used. Really great. Um, that brings up another topic or related to the devices topic. Does leaving the room, is that a device in many ways? Yeah, for sure. Definitely taking breaks is absolutely necessary. Um, I have a patio outside, so like we'll take breaks and spend a lot of time out there. Mm. Yeah. Have, have a glass of wine or go downstairs and listen to records for a bit or just take a walk around the neighborhood. That's super important. Mm. Only if you really feel like it's necessary. Sometimes you don't want to interrupt the flow of creativity, but if you really need a break, you should just take it, not force it. Mm -hmm. I've always had to work. Yeah, I, I love this this concept of you just preserving the effortlessness that it, the ever, effortlessness felt when you started making music. I love that idea. Like I, I'm thinking back to a time when I was a kid playing with like cars in my room. And like, I don't know why I have this memory forever, but like lining them up, having them go through the, like going around all these things. Like there was no thought there. There was no like fear there. It was very much an effortless, fun experience. And it seems as though, 
And based on what everyone is saying in the chat and what I know about you is like, that is something you're tr always trying to preserve in the studio without being forceful, but, um, and without imposing your process on people, but making sure that there's enough to get people to get into that mode. Absolutely. It's like, it shouldn't even have to be thought about, you know, Yeah, it should just be all subconscious really. So, yeah. Um, I have a bunch of questions from the audience and um, there's a few in the chat and then a few that have been submitted. Oh. Uh, I wanted, did we cover everything? God. Yeah, uh, feedback. That was one. That was the last one of my topics. Oh, um, feedback is interesting because as a producer, you have to give feedback. As a producer, you're getting feedback. Um, and as a, how would you define this? A uh, person who makes music for corporate entities. <laughs> um, that's a, a whole, uh, it's a whole different approach. Yeah, there's feedback there. One thing that I think so impressive. And so unique about your situation is that you're bridging both gaps. So you're working in a commercial space and getting feedback and processes and emails that are of a certain nature. At the same time, you're in situations where it is all vibe based, you know what I mean? And, and so world. Uh, figuring out where you can, how, you, how to navigate those two worlds and what um, bridges can be built between them or certain ideas between them. Um, Feedback is an interesting one because you get feedback everywhere. So how are you thinking about feedback? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I like getting feedback on, on projects. I mean, I think let, let's dive into, uh, the corporate start, uh, first. Um, yeah, like when I'm scoring in like a brand campaign for a big brand, uh, there's always feedback, no matter what, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the process in which, uh, a lot of these brands, like I'll, I'll even get like more specific, like, like the creative directors and the art directors that are working on these projects obviously have a very specific vision most of the time, if not all the time mm. I'm being brought in to, you know, to do one particular part of that entire project, which is the music and uh, sometimes like sound design. The feedback that generally happens with that is based on, well, I'm not trying to get too technical here, but there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to those problems. And there's a lot, and you probably, you'll know this right away, that there's a lot of approvals that need to get done with big companies like this. Like it has all the way up the food chain. Like a, comp a company like Google or Apple, if I'm working on a project for them, uh, I'm going to get feedback on everything. And I'm going to have to take all of that in and understand that even if it's something I completely disagree with from a creative perspective, it's like not my project. Right. I'm fulfilling. Yeah, really. I mean, like that's what it is. And this ad is going to be to promote selling $10 billion worth of phone. So I really like disagree on something about, you know, I mean, I can, but I have to trust what they want because it's their project and they're bringing me into it. The room for disagreement is much smaller in those spaces. 
like your opinion is one of so many that like the room to disagree isn't really even that much. Exactly. But again, I'm very lucky there have, I mean, yeah, I can't even really remember any situation, even working with brands on scoring campaigns that I've been aggravated or annoyed. Like mm -hmm. I've had great experiences and, uh, maybe that goes back to choosing the right collaborators or the right projects, you know, and saying yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Yeah. It seems like a lot of that is, is to me, like to, 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 uh, maintain that flame, that energy from, I guess you could say it's a useful energy, right? Like the, the free play mindset, you kind of have to choose the right people and navigate the right projects before you get jaded, flame gets blown out. And you're like, uh, don't like this. And I, I guess maybe from experiencing that, uh, with design, you're like, you don't want to do that again. You don't want to repeat that again. Yep. Um, that's wow. it. Yeah. I'm getting it, to like, trying to not get jaded. Like, I think it's really easy for people to get sort of jaded. Mm -hmm. If they're not careful and sometimes it's completely unavoidable, but, um, I think I've just always been, I've always tried to just like maintain like that level of, yes, not innocence, but, uh, just optimism. I'll take innocence and, you know, an optimism and innocence. doing it. Obviously there's been plenty of situations in my work where things haven't gone the way that I had hoped, but. It's very common, but again, I think it's just like choosing the right things, saying no to the wrong things. So that's something. So I'm imagining people that are listening that may already be jaded or maybe approaching that or maybe starting and on a path where they could become jaded. Yeah. You're saying, look, projects haven't worked out. I still maintained my love for this. I want to know the devices there. Like, what does Alex do when that situation happens? Like, project didn't work out. Are you just like, all good? Well, I like get myself into something and I'm like, for example, if I get myself into a project and uh, halfway through, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And I'm kind of already at it. Well, you know, I think I just, you just do it. You take the L and you just keep going. Mm -hmm. You finish already committed to it. Um, but when you're, so that commitment though, does your level of effort change? Does it remain the same? Do you like, how do you adjust to preserve that, uh, effortlessness, the optimism, the innocence that you want to preserve when it's a project that's just shit, let's say like it just gone to shit, you know? I mean, man, I wish I could answer that better just because that hasn't really ever happened to me. I mean, there was only one one thing I can think of, it was a project like three years ago that's still coming out really great, but about halfway through the process got a little crazy. Mm. Um, I think it was just like a little bit of like disorganization. Um, and the gears had sort of shifted about 30 or 40% it in terms of like the creative vision and what mm -hmm. was where I think that was another thing too, is like expectations are usually set in the very beginning with a lot of these projects, because everything's papered, you know, you get paperwork done, you, you sign everything early on. And then when something changes like midway through, 
and it's like going in a direction that you didn't really anticipate. <clears throat> um, you have to be kind of ready for that. And timelines can change. Things can just change. You have to decide to move forward or not. In this particular instance, I ended up finishing it, going through with it, and the end result was really great. But about halfway through, it got pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, you know, I committed to it, so I had to see it through. Mm. It's really, unless it's just terrible and you just can't. Right. Sometimes you know when to say no and when enough is enough. I think that that's the point I wanted to get at is that I'm trying to understand, you know, I, I used to ask people that were in relationships, like, do you guys fight? And they were like, no, we don't fight. Like, and I was like, yeah. I kept asking that and kept getting the same answer one way or the other, like, yeah, we do or no, we don't. But then I realized that the question was actually, how come you don't? You know what I mean? Like, what led you to this point in which you don't? Um, and I think it's similar here, which is, it's not, the, you're saying, you know, I haven't really had that experience. But then the question really for me should have been, you know, what led you to not having that? And and it seems as though a lot of that saying no to, to red flags, maybe, or saying no to projects where you're like, I don't think this is going to work. Um, yeah, just not, yeah. I There was actually a time when I was taking on too much, mm. like too many projects, just, it was like out of hand. And um, I just had no life. I had no social life. I had, I just couldn't think. And I think that was a good experience to go through too, because that's sort of when I learned it's important to say no, to think, just really to do the things that you really want to do and think that, are going to help you and uh ultimately yeah it's like you only have so many hours in the day you better to spend them on things that you actually want to do and again i'm not trying to sound pretentious i don't want this to come off as pretentious because i know like everybody has to make a living and has to like pay for their life but if you're able to do that with the things that you like doing and you could be selective about the things that you take on then you should you know mm -hmm that you really would enjoy doing. Right, instead of just drowning in all the opportunity, good or bad. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes there's moments, you know, be faced to make a decision between multiple projects and you look at the numbers and you kind of wish this was here and this number on this project was, when I say number, I'm sorry, I mean like, you know, what you're getting paid to mm -hmm. do it. Um, and it's hard to like, at first, to make decisions based not on the financial aspect of them. Because mm. you can make a whole lot of money and be completely unhappy during the process. Yeah. I don't know, maybe you're like way happier after you're done. <laughs> no. but maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just think like sticking the right things really is the, the most important thing. Definitely. Yeah. Knowing when to say no, knowing when to say yes. And sometimes you don't know how to do that until you take a couple of L's and experience that. Yes, there's been a few times in both my corporate career and now freelance career where I'm like, I think I said yes too many times. This is uh, too many times two months ago or three months ago. You know, and it's like, you never know until it's like three months later that you said yes to so much. And it's like, um, how do you make those decisions now? How do you know when to say yes or no? All money, bro. Secure the bet. <laughs> I knew it, man. Um, to me, it's 
it's a mix of uh, financial is obviously one of them, right? Like, is there money there? And when I think of money, I think of, are there, is there enough money that I can do what I need to do on this project and not feel like we have to cut corners or I can't devote all the time to it or as much time as I want to devote to it and money as a representation of value of work. So does the client actually value the thing I'm doing and is willing to pay that? Or obviously sometimes they might value the work, but can't afford it. That's a different story. But um, is the client actually committed to this thing? You mentioned the word commitment before, or are they interested in it? Like, oh, that, that'd be cool to have some like new rebrand. And I'm like, okay, it's uh, this many hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands. And it's like, oh yeah, that's cool. Uh, we're we're going to go with Fiverr, you know, or some, you know, or some, some uh, Craigslist posting. You know, yeah. I was like, okay, we're really committed to this whole thing. You know, so that to me, gauging people's commitment to their projects is huge because commitment will start to, or interest dies off quickly and commitment is, doesn't mm-hmm. ideally ever really, you know, it's like, we're committed to seeing this through. So when I call you at any time about any part of this project, you want to figure out the best answer. If you're interested, it's like, yeah, like this guy's doing it, like whatever, you know? So it doesn't feel like it would be collaborative in that, in that kind of thing. So again, it's, it's, you're right. It's choosing collaborators um, to sum that up. And it's also knowing that those collaborators value it and are committed to um, outcomes. And then the last part is more of an ethical one for me, which is, is the outcome something that I want to see in the world? You know, like, yeah. Um, is this organization something I'm excited about that, that people really respect is the cause is the marketing plan that's attached to maybe some social effort, something that I want to put out into the world. Uh, so that's definitely a third component. Do you feel a certain responsibility as a designer? I feel maybe sometimes too much responsibility, you know, like, um, or too much weight on the shoulders of like, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going from me, like I'm taking all of the seven from the client. And then the next step is like, there's no like mixing mastering phase. It's like, I'm producing, mixing, mastering, quote unquote, the design, and then it goes out in the world. And so, you know, you're that last line of defense and offense for the customer and the audience and the people that are seeing it. And so, and culture ultimately, you know, um, so yeah, I definitely feel a responsibility for it and try to, and that can be as things like, are we making the world a little more fun? This is the, one of the hardest times ever, like, or at least for our generation, can we make it a little lighter right now? Um, can we address something that's on someone's mind? Can we um, connect? Can we make people feel seen and heard, you know? And those are questions that the client isn't really asking per se, but yeah, like the client's not really asking that question. Uh, they're kind of like, we want numbers up or numbers down, you know, or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, we can do that. But like, I'm then responsible for pretty much anything that happens next. And if that's uh, organizational process that needs to change, I'm responsible for now the employees and how they operate but also the effect that that might have on everyone outside of work for them, their families and whatever. So, you know, I'm engaging with a project right now that has veered more towards like 
executive coaching than content creation, you know, like, and that is to me more impactful anyway, because that at that level affects all output outcomes, you know? So yeah, I think there's a lot of responsibility. Um, And I love that because with that responsibility, I guess that's the Spider-Man quote, that great power comes great responsibility. It's, it's true. You know, like you're kind of balancing those two things. If you want to have real power and influence in the world, responsibility then increases. So uh, it doesn't mean it's not stressful, but it's rewarding for sure. This big responsibility. I love hearing your take on that. I just made that. That's all. That's all bullshit. <laughs> it's, just, it's just for the gram. Buy any of it. So. <laughs> Um, so those are all my questions, but I know a lot of people had questions and I know that you, you're not one to go on Instagram and go live often and, um, do interviews and stuff. So I'd love to, to pull some things up and, uh, and ask you a few questions. I'm going to start with the ones that people submitted via the questions widget. Um, here's the first one. All right. LR, LR3, IR3. Oh. LR3 services. How has your music style evolved since your days in Savannah? Whoa. I guess that was a, maybe that was from a friend in Savannah. Um, how has it evolved since, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I was just starting in Savannah. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, sometimes I feel like I still don't know what I'm doing, but like, I really didn't know what I was doing in Savannah. I was just trying to teach myself how to make music and Like I was telling you, I just was making it from a really honest place of like never even considering it to be like a career or anything like that. It was really just sort of like an artistic refuge or escape. And um, I think at that time I was buying a lot of records and sampling them and trying to imitate like all my heroes. It was still like, so it was like the RZA and DJ Premier and Pete Rock and like mostly all hip hop producers. So I had never even worked with singers before uh, up until like the end of my time. And, uh, so that was just like a real like learning period for me, like just starting with music, you know, like a lot of people get into music when they're in like high school or middle school. And I started collecting records and being a fan at the age of seven, um, but I didn't get into making music until really late. So Hmm. it was a, yeah, it was a learning period for me. And then I think it's evolved since then in a lot of ways, really just because I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of really incredible people that have taught me a lot along the way, even if they didn't know that they were teaching me anything, Hmm. just getting to work with, you know, I won't go to any names, but I'll just say I've met a lot of amazing people over the last 10 years that have just taught me so much about production, about songwriting. And, uh, that's been like the best experience was just learning from, uh, learning from other people that are, uh, that are better than me at a lot of different things and yeah. grabbing a bit of information, you know, what was thing in terms of evolving your music goal style, what was advice or something you learned indirectly from someone that was like, that you feel is most influential? of the things that you learned? That I learned indirectly from somebody? Either directly or indirectly. Directly. Um, 
you know, it's interesting. Like I, so like my main thing is like, you know, production, like I didn't start off making music as a songwriter. I started off making music, like I said, just sampling records and like making beats and just trying to imitate what a lot of my favorite hip hop producers were doing at the time. Um, and still to this day. And I didn't really have like a grasp on like songwriting. I didn't even like know what songwriting really meant or entailed. Like I just was like, so just through the lens of like hip hop production. And now like looking back and again, it was, it's funny, like you asked this question cause like I'm kind of being put on the spot cause I've never like thought about this now, but, uh, no one really like taught me production along the way, even though like, that's kind of like my thing. Like, I mean, I definitely like learned little tricks and like things from friends that also were making beats and producing things like that, um, that were sort of outside of like my world of like making hip hop. Like I learned, you know, mic techniques from, you know, working with an engineer for like drums and like just things like that, like things that you don't really learn, like when you're just sitting in your bedroom making hip hop beats, sampling records. Right. A lot from just like engineers, but also I learned a lot from people that like friends of mine that are songwriters basically. And I learned the importance of songwriting and how important that is as sort of like a glue into like making like a really great song. And that was something that was a huge pivotal moment for me was realizing that that was super important. Um, again, coming from the world of hip hop, there's great songwriting, but being a hip hop producer, excuse me, um, really sort of just entailed like making tracks, making beats and kind of coaching a vocal performance. But I had no idea how to like play instruments at the time. I didn't know how to like mic an amp, I didn't know how to even capture vocal clearly. These are all sort of things that I just like learned along the way just by working, like I said, with just people that were way better than me, just having an open mind about it. Mm. Trying, to, trying to like learn as much as possible and like not um, like mess anything up along the way, but just like keep, you know, keep making stuff and, and, and enjoying it in the process. Awesome. Here's another question we got. Uh, so gossipy did things change career wise after the buzz of the blueprint three outtakes oh um sort of yeah actually they did um that was a really unexpected thing that happened like <clears throat> i don't know if i ever told you the story but i feel like you may have but i also it was, was pretty- is when i saw this question i was like oh dope yeah, no, it was pretty uh, unexpected and weird. It was like right before I moved to LA and I had sent in all of these tracks to an A&R that I had met in Atlanta who was working with Jay-Z and he sent him like probably 20 or 30 beats of mine. And like a lot of those beats were some of the first ones mm-hmm. I had made within my first couple of years of college. And it's like a mix of tracks in there. And you know, none of them got used. And then I like put it out as like a free mixtape for people to just download. Like that's all it was. Like, yeah. And we made a little website for it. And like, that was it. It was not supposed to be anything more than that. And then all of a sudden it was just getting like hundreds of thousands of downloads. And then it got like almost a million downloads. 
And we were like, and when I say we as like my managers at the time, we were kind of shocked because a lot of people were like reaching out to me at that time. And I think I was just in over my head. Like, I just didn't really like know what I was doing. I was just making hip hop beats and samples. <laughs> um, but it was a really good experience for me to go through because it taught me the importance of like venturing out into making music without samples. Because mm. when I released that, I was getting a lot of inquiries from massive ad agencies wanting to license those tracks for like big campaigns. And I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. Mm. I just, one day like getting a request, like like a like an email from some like music house or something being like, hey, we have $60,000. Like we'd love to license your your beat for this. Like, do you remember what it was? It was like Coke or Mountain Dew or Pepsi or something. It was like a soft drink company or something. But, you know, at the time I was like, oh my God, like someone wants to pay me $60,000 just to use. <laughs> it was just so surreal to me. I was just like, that. Yeah. like I didn't know what any of it meant. I was like, wow, that's like kind of a lot of money just for like a beat I made in 10 minutes. Um, right. And, you know, that was a hard lesson, man, because it did not end up going through because I sampled an old hip hop record and we had to clear the sample and the sample owner wanted like double the amount of money. <laughs> and they were like so greedy about the whole situation. And I'm just like, dude, like I'm trying to make $60,000. Like, how do I do this? You know? So that was a hard lesson. I had to, I had to go through that and I was like, all right, it's the instruments. And I taught myself how to play stuff immediately because I was sort of like anti-sampling at the time. It's like, wow, like I can actually make money in music. Uh, this is also the I ever even considered doing music as a career, really. Like it was totally like a, like an aha moment. So yeah, it definitely gave me a little buzz then and got me into the world of doing a lot of original music and licensing for brands. And like, I think that's even how a lot of the brands that I work with, even to this day, found out about me. Mm. I think even Apple, like, cause my relationship with Apple has been really great ongoing for a long time feel really lucky getting to work with them on a lot of stuff because it's always really great creative and I'm pretty sure that's how they found my work. Steve Jobs was a big Blueprint 3 outtakes fan. Maybe or Johnny Ives. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, who made this? We need this guy. Um, so they weren't Blueprint 3 outtakes per se. Yeah. But they're being labeled as such. I don't even know why I called it that. I just called it that because it. Just, oh, you called I, it that. Okay. I don't even, over, I didn't overthink it, but actually, well, it's just crazy. We're talking about this because I have not thought about this. And like, so I'm trying to actually remember what happened. So like I portray it accurately. Um, oh yes. Okay. Every time you would type the blueprint three into Google, mm -hmm my version, like the Blueprint 3 outtakes would be like the second or third thing. Damn. Okay. At the time, the Blueprint 3 was so like highly anticipated. Mm -hmm. So like it was just being Googled so much. Mm. My project would come up like right underneath it. It was a total SEO optimization. 
but I, it was a total, it was nothing when, yeah, it wasn't like, like a whole marketing scheme. I mean, like kind of it was in, in some ways. Because right. An innocent it, marketing scheme. Innocent market. I made a website for it just so people had somewhere to go to download it. Like it, mm-hmm. it was really like simple. I love that. So simple. Um, and I think what just set it off was the, the SEO, as you said. Wow. I'm buying like Beyonce's next record.com right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's how you make it. Everyone that's on here. Like if you're trying to figure it out, just, yeah, just SEO. SEO. Oh, and it was all, honestly, it was all a big accident. I love that. It was not, it was really just supposed to be like a fun art project. Really. That's how I looked at it. I looked at it like, this is just an art project. I made these tracks. I'm going to make some cover art. I'm going to make a website. I'm going to upload it and my friends can download it. Then just kind of led to other stuff. So that's, and here we are. And years ago too, which is kind of crazy. Is it the, what is that? Um, 10 year anniversary. Is that called anything? I don't know. We could just say the 10 year anniversary of the blueprint three outtakes. Guess so. We need, we need to have an event. So weird to even think about because I haven't thought about it in so long because it's just, it's so old. And when I listen to those tracks, I'm like, oh my God, I made those in like college, like FL version four and like knew nothing at all about compression or like, it was just such a mess, man. It was, but people seem to like them. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But again, that, that gets back to that technology conversation is that like how much of technology is getting in the way of this, of success, you know, in, in career success, even for sure. Yeah. And how much technology help with SEO? Oh no, I think maybe I just picked really good samples for the beats. (laughs) You do have a fact for, for, well, it has me thinking about pasta night at John's Yeah. after eating, you would DJ. And I felt like I was at a radio show, like Alex's radio show. He's putting in record. He's introducing the record. He's giving the story. He's playing the song, maybe the whole record. And then transitioning to another, telling the story, relating them to each other. There was like an insane amount of knowledge that you had about these records. Um, was this like early on to like, did you have that like in this era, Blueprint 3 outtake era? Like was, were you very similar listening to records, studying up, really making those connections? Oh yeah, for sure. I've been doing that since I was like seven or eight years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. I was records at a really young, young age and um, well, I was buying vinyl, but I was buying like cassettes and I, ref- I almost like refused to buy CDs when they came out because I just didn't like how they sounded. Mm-hmm. And I'd always look at the liner notes and I'd be interested in who wrote it, who produced it, who, you know, all right. that. Um, and I've always been interested in like the story behind a record. So it's like more than just like the credits, but it's also about like, like what went into making that record. And um, I've always been really fascinated by that. I've always really dug old music sampling. A lot of the records that I think I would play at John's those nights when we would all hang out, I would definitely pick records that had sort of like weird or bizarre stories behind them. Mm. For sure. 
like a good but, DJ. Yeah, which I would never take any credit for discovering. A lot of these are just records that friends of mine have known about for a really long time that have actually informed me more so about the story and then I go in and do more research. Mm. Yeah, those those moments were some of my favorite moments in LA and definitely favorite moments with you. I it was um I'm I'm a big fan of like genius.com and like reading Wikipedia on albums and and looking up interviews and it felt like all of that and you had that appreciation for all the records and were able to weave it into a, a sonic story as well throughout the night, which was, it was, um, something I hadn't really seen before other than like listening to like a good radio host. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think you should like point the speakers outside and, and do your own radio show personally. Yeah, that'd be fun. I'd be up for that. Okay. Two questions. If what if you're on vacation with no equipment and you want to create something, what do you do? With no equipment whatsoever? That's what they said. I mean. Oh, I'll probably find somewhere and have a nice glass of wine. Yeah, it's vacation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great question. I see what they're doing here. Great question. Um, I'm inclined to going somewhere without any equipment, I'm doing it intentionally to not do any work at all or make it all. Uh, and I bring my laptop with me whenever I travel or wherever I go. Mm-hmm. If I'm deciding to not bring my laptop, then I'm not making Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, I was in, this reminds me of being in Istanbul with John and I hadn't played guitar at that point in like three weeks or so. And I was like in the middle of like working on a whole batch of new songs. And so I was like bought a guitar, like a really cheap guitar. And, and I like, uh, there's like a block in Istanbul where there's just like eight, 10 guitar shops. Um, so I was like, went in, I was like, what's the cheapest, best sounding thing you have? Like find somewhere where those two things converge. Got a decent guitar, which is now at my aunt's, like right in front of me. So I left it in New York when I got there so that like I could travel by coastal and, and have it. Um, but that's what I ended up doing. It's just like finding a guitar and, and using that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just finding something that you just get access to. Just make something. Right. Um, let's see here. Another question from Keenan. What are some side gigs you recommend for artists trying to make it and survive before they sell their art? Hmm. Um, I would say. Uh, find something that just doesn't take up too much of your mental bandwidth mm. um, so you still have enough capacity to create. Yeah, that's but a great one. It doesn't gear you away from what you're doing. Yeah, I have a buddy, think- uh, Solomon in the UK, who's like, I think he's doing like telemarketing and then comes home and produces excellent music. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. I like that low mental bandwidth. Uh, here's another question. Do you ever, there's a, by the way, this is the most questions I've ever received during one of these. So clearly you need to go live like every week, <laughs> address the community. <laughs> um, do you ever hear obscure samples in mainstream ads and be like, oh damn, they sampled that? It made what? Ad? In main ads. Yeah. Oh, um. Yeah, 
I'm trying to remember if I've ever heard any. I mean, I don't, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm not trying to make this about me, but like, I definitely have intended myself to sample very obscure records, like, well, like Indonesian psychedelic rock and like flip that into a beat. And then I got that into like a target campaign, which was like really weird. Thick. The guys in the Indonesian like rock band, like they were from the seventies and they're like in their eighties now or something. And they had like no context whatsoever, like what target was like culturally. Yeah. So it was kind of cool. Like they just, they were from it. And like, we, uh, you know, like this track into something that could be consumed into like a mainstream ad by like one of the most mainstream corporate the world, you know, and like, I've done that a lot of times with samples and stuff like that, but I don't know if I've ever seen any out there, uh, where I've like recognized the sample. However, I've definitely seen TV shows that like Mm -hmm. songs in them that I've known about, which I have a lot of friends that are like music supervisors and stuff. And they're really cool, weird, obscure songs into like mainstream shows, you know? I love that. Super fun. So like, I definitely recognize it more in TV and film, less in ads. But I feel like if there is anyone with a, I don't know what this would be, the equivalent of like a musical photographic memory, I feel like you could spot a sample if you did hear one. So I trust that you haven't heard any unique samples. Well, actually, I recently I did hear a sample that I used a while ago. It was actually a sample that I use on the Blueprint 3 outtakes that I ended up licensed to Target for like a, a big commercial years and years mm-hmm. ago. And I heard that same sample actually get used recently. Uh, but I think maybe just the sample itself, like just the original track was licensed or something. And it was like a, like a web video for a brand. I can't remember what it was, but she sent it to me. I was like, hey, is this yours? And I was like, no, this is just the same thing that I had sampled. But mm. um, yeah, that was actually pretty recently. I forgot about that. Hmm. Uh, so, someone asked, where can I find more of your work? I only know your work from the Pinata remix album. Pinata? Uh, Pinata. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the Matt Freddie Gibbs project. Ah. Um, yeah, I guess if I put my name in Spotify or something, probably like nothing else is going to come up because I've only just been producing Mm. Um, my work's like all over the place really it's like I think the only way you can really find it is like in credits or something Um, but yeah I probably need to do a better job of like marketing my work but it's out there everywhere Uh, YouTube recently got in touch um, wanting to set up like a channel myself with like all of my work like kind of broken down into things that i've produced and wrote and then like all of the ad work mm. work that i've done so i think that'll be the hub to sort of navigate everything once that's done that should be done in a couple of weeks oh cool well there you go yeah it's you yeah like i don't even have a website you know? <laughs> i love it i love it the designer producer who doesn't have a website um is a song born with you or is it brought to you by the singer and you develop it? Uh, 50-50. Sometimes 
a song is brought in and then we develop it. And then sometimes the song just gets made from scratch with nothing, you know, and you just make something on the spot. It's both ways. There's really no blur or, or pattern at all into how things are made. So just depends on the situation. I prefer starting with nothing. A lot of times, like that's just more fun. Songs already written to, you know, you can just like build it up. That's a lot of fun too. Just it kind of depends. So maintaining that flexibility, um, which is kind of a great place to start wrapping up, which is that response kind of represents a lot of what I heard today. I know about you. I've known you for a while. I didn't know everything about your creative process and sort of how you approach it. And to me, what really stood out is this ability to, um, that preservation of the innocence, you said, the optimism, the lack of jadedness, um, and the effortlessness that comes with creation when you first get into it. And I think that flexibility of who brings in a song or how someone's mood is, um, all is addressed through that lens. Um, and that's something I definitely learned about you in terms of how you collaborate. Um, and it shows in the work, it shows in the kind of music you're putting out, the fact that it really feels like it comes from the, the heart and soul of the artist. And, um, yeah, this was really illuminating for me and I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with everyone and answer questions that you may have never thought about or haven't thought about recently. Hey, on the spot, man, for all, all of them. No, it was good. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. For all the oh. thoughtful questions and everything. I really appreciate it. You too, man. Have a great one. Later.